My question is, how do we live godly in an ungodly world? We're going to be going to Daniel chapter 1. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. Unfortunately, I don't have my TV screen with me, so I can't put the verses up for you. So you're going to have to follow in a physical Bible. May I have one of these? Yeah, grab one of those and open it with us. Daniel chapter 1, how do we live godly in an ungodly world? Now, when the Bible was canonized and, and they put the book together, uh, they, they did so, and, and they didn't do it chronologically. As an example of that, you might read where David was living, David died, and then you read a psalm that David wrote. I thought David was dead. Well, it's not chronological. It wasn't as it happened, but the Bible is not put together chronologically. It's put together by type. So you have five books that start the Bible written by Moses that are the law, and then you have the historical books, the history of the nation of Israel, and then you have poetry books like Psalms, uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then you have the prophets, and the prophets are divided into two sections as well, the major prophets, the minor prophets. They're not major and minor because they're more important, major because they're bigger, longer books, and minor because they're smaller books. And Daniel is in the prophecy section, even though it is a historical book. And I believe the Holy Spirit, when they were canonizing the Bible, did that on purpose to show us that history is prophecy. In other words, we look at the culture and the way that they, they navigated culture in Daniel's time, and history can serve as a really good playbook for today. History is prophecy. So when, when Daniel was alive, he was living during a time when Israel was just kind of rejecting God. And pretty much every people group in history has rejected God to some degree. And when you reject God, there's consequences for that. And the consequence for the nation of Israel during this time is they would be taken off as slaves. The Bible uses the term exiled. And so they are taken captive by Babylonians. Babylon is in modern-day Iraq, if you're curious where that is geographically. Let me just read it to you. Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It says, in the th third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, remember that name, Ashpenaz, we're going to come back to him in a minute. The king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. So let me just kind of catch us up with what's happening. So the king of Babylonia was this guy named Nebuchadnezzar. He was brilliant. He really was smart. In fact, Saddam Hussein, who's from the same part of the world, tried to model his leadership after Nebuchadnezzar. He wanted to be the next Nebuchadnezzar. But Nebuchadnezzar, he wanted to conquer Israel, and specifically Jerusalem. And so instead of going in and killing everybody, he just said, hey, why don't we go in and take all the best stuff, including the best people, bring them back to Babylonia, and indoctrinate them with our culture. Basically strip away all of their Jewish culture and indoctrinate them with Babylonia culture, make them think like, act like, be like us, so he's taken all the royal family, so the prettiest, the smartest, the best, most educated, the best people, the best of the best, take away their culture, put in our culture, and then it makes us stronger as a result. Does that make sense? So that was the plan, and that's what he did. 605 B.C., he raids and loots Solomon's temple, takes all the best things, including the best people. All right, verse 4, young men without any physical defect, handsome, that sounds like it's talking about me. Ah! Uh, <laughs> 
Okay. That's my wife. She has to say yes. Showing, out, uh, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. So what he said, I'm going to bring him back, and I'm not going to make you work in the fields, boys. I'm going to basically give you an all-expenses-paid graduate program uh, to become a Babylonian. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, which let me just stop there and say that when he did that, they're getting an all-expenses-paid graduate program with, with a food allowance from the king's table. So you would think, well, they've got to be celebrating. They thought they were going to die, and now they're going to live, and they're going to live really, really good. They're going to live well. But here's the problem. It's because this food that was on the king's table was breaking every Jewish dietary restriction. So they had a lot of laws, and they considered this food to be unclean. They considered this food to be dirty food, and that's a problem. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. All right. So this is where the indoctrination of these, these Jewish boys begins to happen. If we don't understand what's happening in this text, if we don't understand God's word, if we don't understand our culture, if we don't understand that Daniel, the book of Daniel, is a playbook for how we live in our culture, then we could be affected by our culture just like they were affected in theirs and never even know it. Because listen to me, the culture has an agenda. The culture has an agenda. The devil has an agenda. You say, what does he want to do? Well, let's read on to verse 7. The chief official... Ashpenaz gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Daniel's such a great book. It's a storybook. There's all these great stories. Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. A lot of us know those stories from, from Veggie Tales, right? Oh, where is my hairbrush? Oh, where is my hairbrush? Oh, nobody? Oh, where, 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 oh, where is my hairbrush? Thank you, Callie. Nobody wants to sing with me. So this is, this is one of those stories, but he gives them new names. And, and one of the things the devil wants to do, the culture wants to do in their agenda is they want to change your identity. They want to change your identity. Listen to what it says. It says that to Daniel, they gave the name Belteshazzar. So Daniel means God is my judge. That's what Daniel means. But Belteshazzar means lady protect the king. Lady protect the king. So they gave Daniel a, a female name, a girl name. And if you look at any pagan culture all throughout history, look it up. Any pagan culture, there are these gender identity issues. And so they give Daniel a man, a woman's name. And then keep reading. To Hananiah, Shadrach. So Hananiah means Yahweh has been gracious. Isn't that awesome? Hananiah means Yahweh has been gracious. But they gave him a new name, Shadrach. Shadrach means I am fearful of God. So no, no, God's not gracious to you. You should be fearful of God. He's not for you. He's against you. So try to change not only their identity, but change what they believe as well. To Michel, Meshach. So Michel means who is what God is. Isn't that beautiful? Who is what God is? That I've seen you move, you move the mountains, and I believe you can do it again. And yet Meshach, that's a confidence in Meshach, Meshach means I'm despised and humiliated. So you go from a name of confidence to a name of cowardice. 
And then the last one, Azariah, to Abednego. Azariah, Azariah means Yahweh has helped. So he's my helper. Right? And Abednego means the servant of Nebo. And that was a Babylonian god. So trying to strip away their culture. They're trying to strip away their names. They're trying to strip away who they are and, and their beliefs. And that's a problem. My sister, Julie. Hi, Julie. I'm sure she's watching. A lot of you know my sister, Julie. Um, Julie is, uh, is amazing. She keeps us organized. And she's the organized one of the, of the family. She's our, our family historian. And she just knows how to keep things organized. And I appreciate that about 98% of the time. The one time I don't really appreciate it is when we go over for Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner. We're sitting around the, the, <laughs> the dining room table, and we have labels. She labels everything. She labels where we're going to sit for dinner. So, like, there's a label for me, like, read, and I have to sit there. That's where my label is. And there's a label for JC, and that's where she has to sit. And I'm just nefarious, so I'll just go mix up all the labels. And she'll go, that's not where you're supposed to sit. That's where my label was, you know. <laughs> I love you, sister. Okay. It would be quite odd if I went over to her house and I took out her label maker and I started labeling her stuff. If I'm labeling, you know, television, refrigerator, dog, right? Just, even though I, I might be right, I don't have the right because it's not my stuff. So who has the right to label things? Well, you can label things if you own them. If you own something, you can label it. And that's what she's done. You can label something if you purchase it. Right, what happens when, when you were growing up and you got a new backpack or a new baseball glove? What did mom say? Put your name in it, right? Label it, right? Because it's going to look like everybody else's glove. So if you own it, if you purchase it, or if you made it, every one of us have a shirt on, and I'm sure there's a tag in the collar that has some label, some make, because they made it, they can put their name in it, right? And here's, here's the problem, and this is the revelation I had about this, is the devil didn't own you. He didn't purchase you. And he certainly didn't make you. And yet he's trying to label us. He's trying to give us a new identity and a new name. But my Bible says that God made us. And that he owns us. And that he actually purchased us. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from, your, from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. A very steep price, I might add. And so the only person that has the right, the only entity that has the right to name us, to label us, is the one who owns us, made us, and purchased us. And I just, I want us to be aware of that, that a lot of times we allow the enemy or the culture to slap on a label on us or give us a different identity. God says that you're fearfully and wonderfully made and to know that full well. He says you were created in my image, which means you have innate value. So the world can never say anything except amen and echo what God has already said is true of you. Anyway, listen, it's trying to change your identity, but don't allow him to do that. But Daniel didn't. Daniel knew who he was. Look at verse 8. But Daniel resolved, and I love that word resolved. I just get this picture of him putting his feet in wet concrete and letting it cement around his ankles. Like, I'm not doing it. He resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. So he said, I'm not doing it. And I love that he asked permission, by the way. I mean, he could have just said, I'm not eating the food. You're going to hell, heathens. Like, he didn't do that. <laughs> he asked for permission. He goes, I've got some standards. And that's the second thing the culture is going to try to do to us. It's going to try to get us to compromise our standards. Whatever standards we have, 
The culture wants us to compromise those. And when you compromise your standards, you don't erase the tension. You just weaken your resolve. And here's what I mean by that. Is anytime I cross a line financially, sexually, uh, with recreational drugs, what, fill in the blank. Whenever you cross that line, it doesn't erase the tension. It just weakens your resolve. You're more apt to do it again. Well, it didn't kill me. I guess I could do it one more time. I guess I could do it one more time. And it weakens that resolve. And I started thinking about everybody who's watching today, everybody who's in the room with me today. I think we all want to please God. We want to honor God. We want to live for God. But the culture is creating this pressure on us. It's, it's, it's creating this tension and our response, a lot of times, is we move the plumb line of God's word down to a level of moral relativity. And instead of this being the standard, we say, well, I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as her. I'm not as bad as him. And we, and we, we move the plumb line of God's word. This is the standard. By the way, this is for you. I mean, I think you know that, but this is for you. It's not against you. It's not a book of rules and regulations and restrictions. It's actually a book that gives freedom. James 1 says this is the perfect law that gives freedom. I think about, like, just driving. I'm thankful that we have laws in driving. If we could get on 84 to Lubbock and we could go whatever speed and get in whichever lane, I could, I could drive in the left lane if I wanted to. Yeah, there's freedom in that, but there's no freedom in that. I would never get on the road. I would be scared because somebody would be driving crazy and going 120 in the wrong, wrong lane. I'm thankful for the law because the law gives freedom. This, this is not good for God. It's good for you, and it's good for me. This is, a, this is a good book. And I love that Daniel said, you know what? I've, I've, I have some standards, and I, wanna, I don't want to compromise my standards. When culture shifts, you have, to, you have to determine, okay, where am I going to align myself? I want to align myself. And I'm so thankful that Daniel resolved before he even knew what the end of Daniel looked like. He hadn't written the end of Daniel. He didn't know what the end of the book looked like. I mean, he could say, I'm not eating the food, and then he's dead. I mean, he's telling a king no. He could be writing his own death sentence. He goes, you know what? I'm, I'm not compromising who I am. I'm not eating that food because that food is dirty and unclean to me. That's pretty powerful. All right, keep going. Verse 9. Now God had caused the official, this is Ashpenaz, this is the chief official for Nebuchadnezzar. God had caused Ashpenaz to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. So Ashpenaz liked Daniel, but he was afraid of Nebuchadnezzar. And he goes, if I don't feed you the royal food and then you start to get you know, skinny and, and, and all drawn up, like he's going to have my head because I didn't feed you what I was supposed to feed you. So Daniel gives him a plan. He said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he says, here's what I want you to do with me and my friends. Please test your servants for 10 days. And by the way, if there's one thing that's unique about the book of Daniel for me is how many times their faith was tested. This is just the first of many times their faith would be tested. He says, test us for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So Ashpenaz agreed to this. And tested them for 10 days. Let's just keep going. I want to finish the story. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. 
So the guard took away their choice food and their wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Isn't that awesome? So they, they, they just resolved. They said, okay, you're trying to change our identity. And you're trying to get us to compromise our standards. And we're not going to allow you to do this. Again, Daniel is a playbook. History is prophecy of how we can manage this today, to live godly in an ungodly world. And so we're not going to compromise our standards. And I love that Daniel resolved. Let's go back to verse 9. I just want you to catch this. After Daniel resolved in verse 8, verse 9 starts out with, Now God. And there is a, a key player that we sometimes leave out of the equation that when you draw that line in the proverbial sand, that God moves on your behalf. And he, he, he does something that you might not even be able to see. It says God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. So this wasn't something Daniel physically saw with his eyes, but God was intervening on his behalf because Daniel resolved. How do you, how do you influence the culture without being influenced by the culture? How do you influence the culture without being influenced by the culture? I think Daniel did that really, really well. I think he, you know who else did that really well? Jesus. I want to show you, turn with me to John 8. We're going to be there in just a second. But I want to read you one verse out of John 1. John 1, verse 14. Jesus, he was God righteousness robed in flesh and yet he was perfectly holy with prostitutes he was perfectly holy with tax collectors he was perfectly holy with sinners at his feet and i love that james says that sinners drew near to him like <laughs> that's god in the flesh like if i was a sinner and that's god in the flesh i think i'd flee no it says they drew near to him so there was something about him that even though he was perfection sinners wanted to be near him he navigated how to, how to influence the culture without being influenced by the culture. Look at John 1.14. Listen to this. It says, The Word, it's talking about Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So he came and he dwelled among men. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. And here's the, here's the thing I wanted you to catch. He's full of grace and truth. So Jesus was full of grace and full of truth. Let me explain that. So truth, truth is this. Truth is God's standard. Truth is the holy word. Truth is the Bible. And grace is this unmerited, free love and forgiveness of God. And I feel like a lot of people either swing the pendulum in this direction or in this direction. Like they're full of grace. I know a lot of people are full of grace. And they're just, they're just so full of love that almost it's not like they don't love this. They, it just this, it doesn't matter. I just, I just want to show you grace and I want to show you love. And the danger in that is if you're full of grace and you don't have any truth, then you can become corrupt. You can become carnal. You can become worldly. 
And on the flip side of that, I know a lot of people that have swung the pendulum this way, and they're so rooted in truth, and they just say, well, that's just not what God's Word says, and yet there's no grace, and they come off as condemning, and by the way, will be condemned, because Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's the free gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. So you can't be 100% truth. You just can't do it. You have to have grace to get to heaven. But we have people that are so truth, uh, not we, but on the planet, people that are so focused on truth that they miss grace and they come across as condemning and almost judgmental. I, I love to say it this way. Truth without grace is mean. And grace without truth is meaningless. But grace and truth together is medicine. Let me say that again. So truth without grace is just mean. Grace without truth is meaningless. And grace and truth together can be this healing bomb. It can be medicine. Grace invites us, invites us to be free. And the truth actually is the one that sets us free. And so I want you to adhere to this, this book. Don't, don't try to change God's book. And that, that's what a lot of people, maybe in the grace column, they, they, they see something on Facebook or maybe a ruling that's made from our Supreme Court. And we say, well, I, I think it's okay. And we, we don't change God's word. We allow God's word to change us. So we're truth. But we also have grace because we want to impact the world. And Jesus did that really well. Okay, go to John chapter 8. Last story. And we're going to wrap up today. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. I love this story, by the way. It's a very familiar text. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Now, as I'm talking about this story, just like picture in your heads, like I want you to think about this moment. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, Pharisees, again, great guys, religious leaders, they just turned the Ten Commandments into like, 600 commandments, they got so focused on the law that they missed grace. They were, they were truth. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Which, by the way, how do you catch somebody in adultery, Pastor Josh? Do you know? Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Like, what, what were you doing there, bub? Like, I, that's just interesting to me. We're really good at seeing other people's sin and sometimes difficult seeing sin in ourselves. That one's for free. All right. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? That's a great question. What do you say? When, when, when Facebook says, this is okay, what do you say? What do you say when our government hands down a ruling that may not align with this? What do you say? Are we just going to go with the culture? Or are we going to go, what do you say? Verse 6, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now, we don't know what he was writing. My guess is he was writing down the names of the mistresses that all of those Pharisees had been with. <laughs> it just makes me laugh. You know, maybe like what they're thinking like right then. I don't know. Like I just, I, sins that they had done. I honestly think he was just giving them time to think about what they've done. And they wanted to give him this either-or statement, like, are you going to choose truth? Because the truth, the law says we should stone her. Or are you going to give her grace? And then you're abandoning this book to which you say you adhere. 
So they're wanting him to choose one. Do you want to be truth and not have any grace, or you want to be grace and not have any truth? And that's a problem, unless you're Jesus. <laughs> Verse 7, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. So he goes, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, I, a lot of biblical scholars believe the older ones went first because they had the most sin. They had a long record. They just started dropping their stones and walking away. And one by one, they began to leave. And the only two that are left are Jesus and the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. This is so good. Don't miss this. Jesus straightened up, verse 10, and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. So Jesus declares, Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Did you catch that? He says, where are your condemners? She goes, sir, I have none. He goes, neither do I condemn you. Grace. But go and sin no more. Truth. And that's the way we have to navigate this, is we've got to find a way to have grace and truth. I say, I love you, and I want to lead you. Listen, God knows what you did last night. God knows what you were thinking this week, and he's still crazy about you. He loves you, grace. But he goes, I want to draw you to me, and I want you to leave your life of sin because I have a better life for you, truth. And somehow, the way that we influence the culture and not be influenced by the culture is to have grace and truth. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, this is um, something you modeled so well. And something Daniel modeled as well. Just that idea of how do we influence the culture without being influenced by the culture? How do we live godly in an ungodly world? How do we help our friends to see you without coming across as judgmental or condemning and without abandoning your holy word? Well, we have to have grace. I'm so thankful it is by grace that we've been saved. I'm so thankful for the unmerited, free gift of God, the, the, the love and forgiveness that you've shown us. And I'm so thankful for this holy word that is living and active. It is the very breath of you. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. This book is incredible. And it does bring life. And it does bring freedom. So help us to navigate how to keep that pendulum right in the center, that we have grace for those who need it. And we have truth to lead them to a life that you desire. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's what I love to do in closing, and we do this every week. Um, the reason we do this every week is because I never know if this might be the only week you tune in. I would love to give you an opportunity to give your life to Jesus today. Jesus died on the cross. I told you a little bit ago that you were bought with the price. Well, you were bought with the price of him going to the cross because that was the price you were supposed to pay. That was your bill. That was your debt owed. And he goes, I'm not going to give you what your sins deserve. I'm going to take on that 
instead. I'm, I'm going to give my son, Jesus, God said, what your sins deserve. And so he went to the cross and he died for your sins and for my sins. So that debt's paid. This week I was, uh, we went to the butcher's block and uh, I went in and uh, the manager there, super sweet lady, uh, said, I, I, I took care of your meal. And she said, you did a devotional on, on um, your Facebook and it just really it ministered to me and I wrote it out and I put it on my mirror and I look at it every day when I'm getting ready for work. And she said, I bought your meal. Now again, in that moment, I have two options. I can either say, no, I ordered the food, I'm picking up the food, I'm going to eat the food, I'm going to pay for the food. That's silly, right? The other option is we just go, thanks so much. It's very kind. Jesus paid for your sins. So you can either A, say, no, I, I thought the thoughts, I did the things, I'm going to pay for my sins. Or you can say, thank you. Wow. And you give your life to him because he gave his life for you. So I want to give you an opportunity to do that. And scripture says in Romans 10 that if we'll confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and we'll believe in our hearts God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved today. Like your eternity changes today. You don't have to pay for your own sins. Don't pay for them. They've already been paid for. And so I want to pray for you. And right there where you're at in your living room, I want you to pray this with me. Again, confess it with your mouth. I want you to believe this in your heart and you will be saved. Would you pray with me? Just pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I do believe that you died for my sins, that you paid a price meant for me. You gave your life so that I might give my life to you. I'm asking you to come into my life to not only save me, but to lead me in grace and in truth. Help me to be full of grace to those who need it, but to grow in my wisdom of truth so that I can be more like you. And Lord, I'm going to stumble, but I'm thankful that your forgiveness covers all my sins, past, present, and future. Thank you for your love, and thank you for saving me today. I give my life to you in Jesus' name. Amen.